Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101. The court is back from its winter recess, and so are we. And you know, GC, the court really hit the ground running uh, with six oral arguments and opinions this week. Uh, So why don't we dive right in? All right. I'll start with orders. There were a lot of orders this week. I just wanted to highlight one out of the long list uh, because it will be of great interest to listeners who work or practice in the district courts. And that case is Kemp versus the United States. The court took up that case, which will resolve a long, simmering, and much mischief-causing dispute about whether Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 60B1, which authorizes relief from a final judgment based on mistake, encompasses mistakes of law made by the district court judge. We also had oral arguments in the vaccine mandate cases last Friday, and now, less than a week later, opinions. We'll cover those in a moment, but we wanted to quickly summarize the other oral arguments first. The court, again, as we said, heard several cases. One is whether a state can recover Medicaid money that it spends on a beneficiary's injuries from tort settlement money that the beneficiary later recovers from the person who caused the injury. The court will also decide whether an illegal alien who has been detained is entitled to a bond hearing where the government will have to prove that the alien is a flight risk or a danger to the community. And finally, the court will consider whether the lower courts can use their inherent equity powers to toll certain tax deadlines. I would like to know if a court has the inherent equity of power to excuse me from taxes entirely. Maybe, but I think there's a, a term of federal imprisonment that comes with that. I'm not, I'm not sure if you see Well, turning to opinions, thank you, Zach, for your expertise on that point. (laughs) We got opinions in both of the vaccine mandate cases. Uh, The first is the OSHA mandate, which tried to require businesses with more than 100 employees to require their employees to either be vaccinated or submit to weekly testing and mask mandates. In a 6-3 per curiam decision, the court held that Congress had not delegated OSHA the authority to broadly regulate public health like this. The court used the major questions doctrine, which is the requirement that Congress must very clearly express its intention to delegate to an administrative agency broad powers over vast economic and political issues. It just wasn't clear, the court said, that Congress had ever intended to delegate Uh, such sweeping power to OSHA. For one thing, the agency has no special expertise in infectious diseases. Its power has never been used for anything other than, and I quote, comparatively modest rules addressing dangers uniquely present inside the workplace. And Congress itself has refused to impose any nationwide vaccine mandate. Justice Gorsuch concurred, writing an excellent opinion explaining why the major questions doctrine matters and giving us all a much needed reminder about the good that is the separation of powers. He included a subtle nod to Judge Jeffrey Sutton, who wrote a wonderful book on that topic called Who Decides? Finally, Justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor dissented, arguing that the statute should be read very broadly to give OSHA the power to impose a vaccine mandate. Next up was the healthcare worker case where the government imposed a mandate on facilities that receive Medicare or Medicaid funding to ensure that their staff with limited medical or religious exemptions are vaccinated against COVID-19. In a 5-4 per curiam decision, 
And as a reminder, procurium decision just means that the decision wasn't signed by any particular justice. The court allowed this mandate to take effect. The majority agreed with the government that the HHS secretary's vaccine requirement rule falls within the authority Congress has given him. The justices also rejected a host of other statutory objections, which included a finding by them that this rule was not arbitrary and capricious, which is an important administrative law standard. Justice Thomas dissented, and he was joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, and Barrett, and he said that in his view, because the government has not made a strong showing that it has the statutory authority to issue this rule, he would not have allowed the rule to take effect. He said, quote, these cases are not about the efficacy or importance of COVID-19 vaccines. They're only about whether CMS has the statutory authority to force healthcare workers by coercing their employers to undergo a medical procedure they do not want and cannot undo. Justice Alito, joined by Thomas Gorsuch and Barrett, also issued a dissenting opinion saying that he would not have allowed the mandate to take effect because he doubted the federal government had the authority to issue it and that even if it did, quote, it did not have the authority to impose that requirement in the way it did. Now, GC, what I found uh, interesting about both of these cases, both Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh were in the majority of both decisions. Very interesting. We also got an opinion in Babcock versus Kijikazi, an 8-1 decision by Justice Barrett holding that civil pension payments to what are called dual-status military technicians are not pensions based on service as a member of a uniform service and thus are not exempt from a social security reduction. A dual-status military tech is someone who is a member of the military but performs work for the military outside of their normal military work time and for that work are treated as civilian staff. They can get a pension for that work in addition to their military pension, but when it comes time to retire and collect their two pensions, the Social Security Administration reduces the civil pension pursuant to a windfall elimination provision. Now, that windfall elimination provision applies only to civil service pensions, not pensions, quote, earned as a member of a uniformed service. So the appellant here argued that his dual status service is actually uniformed service, but the court disagreed, saying that Congress was very clear that dual service is not to be treated the same as uniformed service, uh, despite what it might really look like on the ground in practice. Justice Gorsuch dissented based on the realities on the ground, saying that dual status workers have to be active in the military while they do their work, they have to wear their uniforms while they do it, and they fall under the disciplinary authority of the adjutant general. To him, that looked a lot like uniform service. And that is it for opinions this week. We turn now to an interview with a district court judge. We are joined today by Judge Sarah Pitlick, district judge in the Eastern District of Missouri. Judge, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Judge, uh, you're now, you know, a judge. You're in the middle of an illustrious career in the law, but you actually started uh, on a very different educational and career path. What can you tell us about that? Uh, well, that's right. I did take a rather circuitous path, first to the law and then to the bench. When I was a teenager and trying to decide what I wanted to do in college and beyond, I had the uh, decidedly mixed blessing of liking pretty much everything and not really having any idea what I wanted to do with my life. There weren't any grooves that were already worn for me uh, by my family, uh, 
you know, we had a wide variety of things that my brothers and sisters and parents did. And um, I didn't really have any sort of preconceived notions on that score. So when I applied to colleges, I, I actually applied to like 17 or 18 schools because I needed money to go to school. And I put down a different major on each of the applications just to uh, keep things interesting, I guess, because uh, I knew I wouldn't be bound by what I put on my applications. But that just shows you how sort of undecided I really was. So when I went to Boston College, ultimately, I was very enamored of the humanities and specifically an honors program they had there, which had like a great books seminar format. But I also felt like I had always enjoyed math and science, and it was a good idea to get uh, a concrete skill. And so I also signed up for a pre-med curriculum. So I was a philosophy major, ultimately, (laughs) but also pre-med. Uh, in the hopes of kind of playing every angle for as long as possible. Right. Uh, I took a great deal of chemistry and all of the applied uh, sciences while I was while I was also kind of being drawn more to the humanities. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of my college career, I was given the excellent advice that I should try to make sense of the various strands of my education. <laughs> and so I, uh, for the purposes of sort of postgraduate applications and things like that, I thought about how philosophy relates to the Western cultural tradition and the humanities and philosophy, and I kind of merged my interests into the study of bioethics or ethics in the uh, medical profession. Mm. And then that sort of guided my postgraduate work for quite some time. Uh, And then um, after I graduated from college, I did, like I said, a couple of um, degrees in bioethics before I uh, wound my way to law school. So uh, with respect to bioethics, you got two master's degrees, one from a university in Belgium, one from Georgetown, uh, and then you went on to teach. What did you, so what, what within bioethics and philosophy, what, um, I guess, what was your expertise and what was uh, your teaching experience? I, yes, I did two master's degrees. They were quite different. The first one was right after undergrad when I was still sort of swimming around in all the different ways um, I could proceed after graduation. And it was a a thoroughly interdisciplinary degree where I took courses in sociology and political science and theology, as well as philosophy. And I was in a program with students from all around the world who were studying ethics as applied in a variety of contexts, like business ethics and politics Mm. and different professions. And so I got a taste of the very wide range of disciplines that could give rise to ethical issues and then could contribute to resolving them. Uh, But then I came back and I didn't really know exactly, I still didn't know exactly which one of those disciplines I wanted to proceed in. And so I spent some time working in academic centers for bioethics. And in that context, I got to be exposed to lawyers and doctors and philosophers and social scientists and theologians. And ultimately, I decided that I would like to do a JD and a PhD in philosophy Mm. and ultimately teach ethics, um, but in a law school setting or in a joint appointment in law and philosophy. Okay. So that was the that was the goal and I I wanted to get my coursework all out of the way first because I didn't want to be going to law school 10 years down the line when I finally finished a PhD. So I did my <laughs> coursework in philosophy in a PhD program at Georgetown and that was more of a traditional um I, my, I ultimately was going to focus on issues of ethics but I was you know, in a full-fledged uh, traditional philosophy PhD program. So I took comprehensive, excuse me, comprehensive exams in 
in metaphysics and epistemology and ethics. Uh, and I took things like philosophy of language and logic and as well as sort of more specialized courses in philosophical ethics and bioethics, people like Aquinas and Aristotle and Kant, and also more contemporary analytic approaches to ethical theory. And then after, during that experience for a couple, that, those couple of years at philosophy graduate school, I did teach a couple of courses. I, of course, I TA'd a little bit with Georgetown undergraduates, and then I taught my own course in bioethics at Trinity University, which was right across town um, from Georgetown and had a good relationship with that department. So I, I got a taste of teaching, and I knew I really enjoyed uh, that interaction and, and that that was something that I would like to do in the future. So what made you decide uh, to switch to a career in the law? So I was, I was going to go to law school as kind of an adjunct to my philosophy PhD to kind of make me more marketable. So I guess it was a little bit pragmatism <laughs> or a lot pragmatism in that uh, I don't know what you know about the job market for humanities professors. I have is, an idea. <laughs> it is grim. Uh, and my twin sister, I have an identical twin, and she had gone to law school by that time. Uh, so I knew that I could it was something I would enjoy and, and that I could do well at it if I put my mind to it. And then I also knew that having done well at it, I would be able to market myself academically to law schools, uh, not just philosophy departments. Mm. And that would brighten my career prospects considerably. But then once I got to law school, I kind of started converting from a future academic to a future lawyer. I found that I was really better at writing and enjoyed writing more the way that lawyers do it uh, with a specific advocacy objective in mind, or at mm. least with a concrete policy context or a set of laws or tools to address or apply, rather than theorizing about sort of ideal sets of norms or practices. I found that the applied side of my mind had been a little bit undernourished in uh, the philosophy academia. And so I just found the law to be really uh, interesting and in posing all sorts of interesting conceptual puzzles, but mm -hmm. in a more real world context than I had been experiencing them in philosophy. And then, you know, it's just as important probably that what lawyers do uh, is more adaptable to a sustainable life and family life. And so by the time I graduated from law school, I had gotten married and I was, um, you know, I had other people to consider than just myself. Mm -hmm. And so the path of least resistance, which was to continue on the path from law school to legal practice, dovetailed quite nicely with my kind of evolving personal priorities. And so I put my dissertation on further hold and I, I went into legal practice for a while. And then after I had been in legal practice for a while, I had the opportunity to clerk. And that was really when the die was cast. Uh, my clerkship really turned me from, a, from someone who was interested in the law academically to someone who uh, wanted to practice it. So I get a feeling that uh, what social science professors must not have great qualities of life because your <laughs> opportunity cost was big law at Covington and Burling. And oh, that well, was that a better... Was a... <laughs> <laughs> now, now. The Covington experience was wonderful and taught me a great deal. And I really couldn't have had a better big law experience. So oh, it wasn't, that's great. As, uh, wasn't as dreadful as you might uh, imagine. <laughs> 
Good, um, I'm glad. And, uh, and the lives of philosophy professors are wonderful in a lot of ways, but the job market and the beginning stages mm. of a philosophy career, and certainly when you're writing your dissertation, you know, uh, it's hard to get paid to do that. So it's sure. very, uh, it's a stark contrast. Uh, and considering that I wanted to do things like uh, have kids and mm-hmm. help support my family. And I had these incredible opportunities in the law, like working at Covington. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a hard choice to say, boy, you know, why not take advantage of these tremendous opportunities and at the same time, you know, support myself, <laughs> which <laughs> philosophy at that time would not have immediately allowed me to do. So you mentioned your clerkship, which was for then-judge Brett Kavanaugh. What was that experience like? It was tremendous. And as I've already alluded to it, it changed my life. I learned everything. I learned about legal arguments and how they're made, how to assess them, how to interrogate and analyze them. He taught us a great deal about how to treat the parties and how to understand arguments, how to impute to every party the best version of their argument and to keep in mind the real consequences of every case in the lives of the parties to it. He modeled how to sort of give your absolute all at all times to every case. It was really a clinic in uh, both judging and advocacy. You get to see a great deal of of different models of advocacy uh, in the context of an uh, appellate clerkship. And it it really converted me from someone, as I mentioned, who, who kind of thought the law was interesting academically to somebody who could imagine myself uh, practicing it and specifically litigation. I could see really how litigation was was similar to philosophy, really, a forum for giving and responding to reasons, but that in litigation, the implications of those discussions were real and important and immediate uh, in a way that philosophy rarely was. Do you also, have any- I should say oh, about, sorry. sorry to interrupt you, I should say about my clerkship, the, another tremendous aspect of it were the people I got to clerk with who were just extraordinary, and they were extraordinary lawyers and tremendous people, and uh, and it was a just a privilege to work with them too. Do you have any special memories of, uh, I, I call him Justice Kavanaugh now since yes. uh, that's what he is now. Uh, yeah. I, my favorite memories of uh, then Judge Kavanaugh are I think pretty mundane. Uh, they were from informal interactions I had with him both before and after I clerked with him. I mean, you've probably heard he's a very personable individual. He's very supportive of his clerks and supportive of law students. He's taught I wasn't yet attuned to the whole clerkship market or how significant a person he actually was because, again, I was planning on being a philosophy professor. (laughs) Uh, And so his way of addressing me and the other law students didn't really give me any clue that I was dealing with someone quite as lofty as I was. Um, He wasn't even slightly, you know, pretentious or self-important. He was really down to earth and personable and a lot of people who met him uh, in that context and uh, in other contexts on law campuses can attest to this. So I really appreciated how he interacted with me before I ever even considered applying for a clerkship. And then after that initial meeting, he was, again, even though I wasn't applying to clerk, he was available to answer my questions and he offered me advice when I asked for it. Uh, And then later when I thought about clerking, it was a far less daunting prospect than it otherwise might have been. And then I, I think it was incredibly gracious of him uh, I thought it then, and I still think it to this day, to offer me a spot in his chambers, knowing that my interests were not the same as most of his other applicants. I wasn't interested in becoming, you know, a Supreme Court litigator or really 
any other kind of legal world domination uh, at that time. And so that clerkship really changed the course of my career and my life. Uh, and it was a very generous uh, thing for him to give it to me. So uh, I don't know if I can possibly think of a more special memory than that. Did, uh, did he have any traditions with you and your co-clerks? He has a number of traditions. He, he gets everybody together uh, a couple of times a year. He takes us to a baseball game, his much-loved baseball games. Uh, he invites everybody, past, present, and I think future. You know, if you've been hired to clerk for mm-hmm. Justice Kavanaugh, you're, you're invited to these things even, uh, or at least back then. There were fewer of us then, so I can't speak to you right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, you were invited to come to the, the ball game. He also, he and Ashley have um, all the clerks and their spouses over their home every year for a holiday party. Being um, remote uh, here in St. Louis, I don't get to take advantage of these opportunities mm-hmm. as often as some of my co-clerks, but but he does have a couple, both of those traditions every year. He also has every five years we have a clerk reunion, and you might have heard that at that clerk reunion there's always a 5K. We call it the BK 5K, <laughs> uh, where the, his more industrious former clerks and he always run a 5K in the morning before we have uh, dinner together that evening. It's mm-hmm. fun, fun tradition and kind of does justice to his love for competitive athletics. And then while we were clerking, we didn't have a lot of rituals besides working hard all the time, uh, but we did eat lunches together near the courthouse from time to time, and we went to a hockey game together, I remember. But I think the kind of one routine that really I prized most highly and probably his my co-clerks did as well is that he would always bring us in all together, uh, if not daily, then nearly daily, to hash out uh, upcoming cases and opinions and those discussions and the fact that he sort of involved us all in them together were always really animated and interesting, and I got a, a great deal out of them. So you've clerked for Justice Kavanaugh. You have been convinced to be a, a lawyer rather than a philosopher, uh-huh. and you work at uh, a boutique firm called Clark & Sauer. What did you do there? Well, uh, I did a, a little bit of everything. Um, Clark & Sauer was where I landed right after my clerkship or shortly thereafter, I moved back to the Midwest. I'm originally from Indianapolis, uh, and my husband is from St. Louis. And when we had our second, we thought the grass looked a little greener uh, in the Midwest. So we so we moved here, and for the first little while, I wasn't working at all. We had just moved, and I had just had a baby, et cetera. Um, but then I started putting out feelers, and I was really fortunate enough to land a position in this small but mighty litigation outfit where, you know, at a small firm like that, everybody sort of has their hand in everything because it's very leanly staffed. And so I got to work on everything from municipal tax litigation to breach of contract disputes, and then all the way up to Supreme Court amicus briefs. And I got to do sort of all the different phases of all those different litigations. So it was definitely a jumping in with both feet kind of uh, situation. Having just sort of seen litigation from the bird's eye view of an appellate clerk, I did a little bit of litigation work at Covington, but, uh, you know, in a big firm environment, the division of labor is so such that you don't get a picture of the whole uh, litigation as a as a junior associate. So I I had never kind of done everything from soup to nuts in a, in a case before. Uh, and while I certainly worked with colleagues uh, in all of these cases, so I wasn't, I'm saying I single-handedly did everything in any particular case, but I had an opportunity to participate in litigation process, you know, from the beginning to the end in all sorts of different kinds of cases, which mm-hmm. was 
extremely, extremely beneficial. And then I have to say what was most remarkable about it was, I don't know if it's the Midwest or the size of the firm or just the people I was working with, but, you know, they were able, nimble enough and tolerant enough to sort of allow me to be so involved in in the the firm's cases while also working primarily from my home, you know, while I reared my two and then three mm-hmm. tiny children at the time while I was working for them. So I had this extremely unusual, too, too unusual experience of getting to kind of jump into the deep end litigation-wise while also being present for my young children as a parent mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think enough attorneys really uh, get to do. So it was a really great experience. After that, you uh, went to work for the Thomas Moore Society, a nonprofit public interest law firm, or I, 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 I don't know if I'd call them a law firm, but litigation group. Uh, yeah. What did you do there? I would call them a law firm, uh, although they're, they're pretty <laughs> decentralized. So there's a nucleus of attorneys in Chicago uh, who kind of manage the firm, but there are people all over the country who work with the Thomas Moore Society, and that included me in St. Louis on on all sorts of cases. So it it grew out of a three-decade-long litigation against pro-life protesters. Uh, and then it remained in existence after that litigation finally ended to defend legal protections for life and religious liberty and to defend the First Amendment rights of people who advocate, advocates for those causes. So it was, I was again a member of a small shop and I again got to I got to work mainly out of my house, but this time with people all over the country, which was uh, tremendously edifying. And and again, I got to kind of do everything there was to do on our cases. And, and those cases, while they were more focused and than sort of when I was doing general civil litigation, uh, they still ran a pretty wide gamut. But I did do mainly First Amendment work. Mm-hmm. We defended the rights of individual protesters and journalists to freedom of speech and expressive association. I also had cases challenging laws that burdened our clients' rights, uh, seeking to enforce public records requests. Uh, I pursued a complaint on behalf of a woman with a brain injury who'd been denied health care on the basis of an assessment of her quality of life. Um, I even, for a time, dipped into criminal defense work. It was really kind of all over Mm -hmm. the map and, again, another tremendous learning experience uh, for someone who, especially who was working out of her home with four small children. So uh, it was uh, it was an extraordinary opportunity, and I will always be grateful to them. Now, I want to fast forward to uh, 2018 uh, when Justice Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court. You were a great advocate for him, writing articles and letters in support, uh, along with a number of co-clerks and former colleagues of his. What was that experience like to participate in from from that side? Well, it had exhilarating moments and agonizing moments, as you might imagine. Uh, at the beginning, we were just, you know, if I can be so bold as to speak for all of his clerks, uh, we were also delighted to support him and to, we were very enthusiastic about letting the world know uh, about this really admirable jurist and human being that we had all had the privilege of knowing uh, in the context of our clerkship. And so for a while there, it was, you know, stressful, but quite a bit of fun and just really got to connect with all of my fellow Kavanaugh clerks a great deal and the judge himself. And just, it was, it was a really engaging and exciting experience. 
And then when things became more difficult and fraught, uh, you know, our mission became more about letting others know how he had modeled respect and generosity and, and kindness in his treatment of each one of us. And it wasn't, well, certainly wasn't as fun. Uh, and it wasn't an easy time at all, but none of us went through it alone. We were supported by legions of other Kavanaugh clerks and other people who had, you know, known and respected then Judge Kavanaugh. So the next year, uh, you found yourself on the other side of the, uh, the table. Uh, you're going through your own confirmation process. What was that like for you? It also had its ups and downs, uh, I will say. It is without a doubt the greatest honor of my life that I was invited to put my name up for this job. And, the, you know, and then uh, the president uh, nominated me, so I certainly don't have any complaints. Uh, <laughs> but it's certainly a peculiarity of our process that it takes people who, you know, we've signed up to play a an explicitly apolitical role in the constitutional structure. And then it puts those people through an extremely political process to get right. there. Um, and so it, it is an awkward experience to say the least. Uh, and never having been in politics myself involved sort of in politics, capital P, mm -hmm. uh, it was really eye opening for me. I was fascinated and I learned a lot about how decisions are made in the elected branches. Uh, and it made me really grateful for the public servants who serve both as, as elected officials and then their staffs who are just working tirelessly mm. uh, to get things right for the American people. But it was also really sobering and made me grateful <laughs> that the role <laughs> I have been asked to play is far from the churn of politics. Yeah. So what are your reflections on your first uh, few years on the bench? Hmm. That's a broad question, but uh, <laughs> I've, only been, I've only been at it for almost two years, although um, that, even that surprises people because of COVID. It sort of, a lot of people, including myself, sometimes feel like I just got here. Hmm. Um, but I, I certainly do not purport to be an expert yet in this job or this role and certainly not on the normal functioning uh, of, of the <laughs> judiciary because the last year and a half have been anything but normal. But I could say, first of all, that the most impressive thing about, impressive in the sense of makes an impression, about the job of a district judge is, in fact, its breadth. And that's something that you, you know going in. Every judge I spoke to before I took the bench noted the fact that there's just a tremendously wide variety of subjects and issues that arise and that every case, whether you're here for a year or 20 years, every case presents some new issue uh, that you've never seen before. And you hear that before you start, but you don't really live it uh, until you're here. And it's certainly the most interesting part of the job, uh, hands down. And it was something, hearing about it before I started, I thought I would enjoy and I and I do enjoy it. But it's also the most challenging part of the job. And uh, I'm told that, that you know, like I said, it never, um, it never really changes. Part of the, the role is to be constantly learning new things, which is just an extraordinary opportunity. And I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. And then um, apart from that, uh, about the, the court I'm actually on, uh, I can say that I've just been delighted by the other members of my bench and how collegial and supportive they've been of me during, uh, especially during COVID when we mm -hmm. don't naturally run into one another. I mean, it's, district judges are pretty 
sort of separate anyway, but, but there were at least sort of meetings and committees, et cetera, other ways I might've interacted with my fellow judges if we weren't in a global pandemic. And that all came <laughs> crashing down about three months after I started. So, um, right. uh, despite that, I have, you know, been in contact with every single one of my colleagues and I, I sit on a bench of eight active judges. We have, uh, several senior judges who are all still very active. We have a number of uh, magistrate judges and we have bankruptcy judges in the building. And I have, I've received such an, like a incredible amount of support and encouragement from, from all of those people. And, and it's a, uh, um, very, it's not surprising because of course I worked in the federal judiciary and I know it's full of really dedicated public servants and, and good people, but you never know, you know, the character of your bench until you, until you're on it. And, and this bench, the Eastern district of Missouri is just full of uh, really wonderful people. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And then the last thing I'll say is that it is true what they say, or at least what Justice Kavanaugh always said, that law clerks are the best part of the job. <laughs> uh, they are, make it a lot more fun. Uh, and they also, you know, make my work a lot better. So uh, I'm grateful for the law clerks every day. I know that you've spent most of your time on the bench during the pandemic, but have you been able to form any traditions of your own with your clerks? A few. Uh, you're right that it's been slow to develop because of the pandemic. One of mine specifically, I wanted to have in the tradition of Judge Kavanaugh and many other uh, judges, I wanted to invite my clerks over to my home once a year. And my first such gathering was planned for St. Patrick's Day 2020 which you may recall as the week everything came to a grinding halt. Right. Uh, and so that was the first of many occasions uh, in my life anyway to be canceled uh, due to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we didn't get to do that really at all until have them over until this past summer. But we made up for it in July of this year. All my clerks so far came over uh, for some some grilling in the backyard. And one of the reasons for St. Patrick's Day is that my family, I'm original. My maiden name is Martin. I come from Irish stock mostly. Uh, and so my kids are studying Irish arts in a program and they learn music, et cetera. And so it's a particularly sort of fitting celebration for my family, but we managed to incorporate music and such both by my children and my, some of my clerks uh, played music uh, when they came over this summer. So I hope that we can keep that up every year. Um, another thing that I have tried to incorporate COVID permitting is um, we have, we volunteer as a chambers together at the St. Louis area food bank once or twice a year after I try to time it after sort of particularly stressful periods in chambers. Uh, I like to remind us all that there's life outside these walls and that there are other important goods to be pursued. You know, we do good and important work here, but um, there, there are a lot of ways to do that. And, uh, and I like to try to mix it up a little every once in a while. And then the, uh, oh, and I've also <laughs> instituted a movie, pit, like Chambers at the Movies. <laughs> uh, so we've been every six months or so, if I can fit it in, we watch a, a, a movie that is in some way related to the law. So our first one was To Kill a Mockingbird, mm. but then we, uh, we lightened it up a little with my cousin Vinny Classic. Uh, for the second one. <laughs> yes. uh, and I hope we can keep alternating between, you know, classic classics and modern classics uh, as we go on. And then 
Oh, I guess we do have a few traditions. The last thing I'll say is I've <laughs> I was going to say you've corp- done very well in a year and a half, <laughs> most of which was in the pandemic. Probably because of the pandemic, you know, we've made an even greater effort to try to do things together because really my first set of clerks, they were just home for six of the nine mm-hmm. months of their clerkship. Uh, and so once I was able to have them back on site, I'm, you know, really trying to make it an experience that everyone enjoys and gets something out of. So, um, one thing I haven't incorporated is a baseball game, and I do want to do that, not just as an homage uh, to my judge, uh, but also because Bush Stadium is literally right outside uh, the courthouse here. So um, it's really a, a shame that I didn't get there with them this year, but I would like to take them to a baseball game. But uh, what, what we have done is I'm trying to create little holiday traditions for chambers uh, that involve my kids and the kids of other clerks. So last year we had a holiday party where we made ornaments uh, for the chamber's Christmas tree. And this is so that my tree in future years will have, will have handmade ornaments on it from that remind me of all the little grand clerks, as I think (laughs) they're called, and my own kids as they get older and less interested in making cute things for me. So those are some of the things we're doing. I could always do better. (laughs) Well, Judge, I wanted to thank you so much for your time and uh, ask you our final question, which is, uh, if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? Well, I have heard a lot of people answer this question, so I know that everybody finds it difficult, uh, not just (laughs) me, uh, because, of course, I would love to talk to any of the sitting justices, as well as so, so many of those who have gone before. That said, I am in the middle of reading a book on Justices O'Connor and Ginsburg, and they're really groundbreaking lives and careers. And so if I had to choose right now, and this is probably cheating, uh, <laughs> but I would, I think I would choose to have coffee with the two of them. And because uh, I would love to hear them talk to each other about uh, comparing notes, sort of, um, with me as a fly on the wall, uh, about really anything, but especially about how they think, uh, what things they think went well or poorly, decisions they're glad they made or, you know, that they would hmm. they would change if they could, uh, specifically as they s- built these just extraordinary careers while also playing a really important role in the lives of their families. And they clearly prioritized uh, their roles as spouses and parents. And it would just be fascinating to me to hear them uh, talk about that. And if I could participate, that'd be great too. But mostly I'd like to hear them talk to each other. (laughs) Well, Judge, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Oh, well, thank you. It, It was an honor to be asked. Zach, are you ready for this week's trivia? No, but let's do it anyway. (laughs) I have for you this week trivia that I have dubbed constitutional conundrums. Mm. So as you know, last year I found myself studying the 27th Amendment. That amendment has never been interpreted by the Supreme Court. So it got me thinking about other issues that have escaped the court's review. So here is some trivia about interesting and unresolved constitutional issues. All right. Hit me with it. All right. Number one, besides the 27th Amendment... What other amendments have not been interpreted by SCOTUS? And to be clear, when I say interpreted, what I mean is that the court has had at least one case where a majority really engages with the substance of the amendment. I don't mean passing references or dicta from other cases. Well, I felt like my answer should be several. There are several amendments. (laughs) You're right. That's one point for Zach. Well done. (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, Well, let me give this some thought here. Uh, Just kind of ticking through the amendments, if I start Mm -hmm. at the beginning, I'm going to think 
there hasn't been a major Third Amendment case, uh, which is the courting of troops that I can think That's of. That's correct. I would say there probably hasn't been any major Ninth Amendment decisions uh, because I remember Robert Bork, uh, I think, famously called it an ink blot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're right. Uh, that that is correct. It has come up in in several um, separate opinions. Very notably, Justice Story's dissent in Houston versus Moore. And Justices Goldberg's and Black's opinions in Griswold versus Connecticut, but the majority has never delved into it. So you're right there. Keep going. All right. Just kind of ticking through. I can't think of any major litigation uh, over presidential uh, succession, which I think is the 20th Amendment. Uh, 25th, but yes. Also the 20th. The 20th is presidential term and succession. 25th is the chain of succession. But you're right. right. In right. fact, both right. of those. I don't know that there's been any litigation over the uh, two-term limit the 22nd Amendment imposes. Correct. I've been looking a lot at D.C. statehood, as you know, uh, G.C., and the issues surrounding that. Uh, I don't know that the Supreme Court has ever heard any litigation about the 23rd Amendment. Correct. Uh, and then I'll go back to one you mentioned, the 25th Amendment, uh, presidential succession. I don't think that's ever uh, been uh, visited by the court. Also Correct. That's uh, uh, that's what I got uh, for you. Wonderful. In fact, I think you've only missed two. The 19th Amendment, women's suffrage. Uh, now, there could be a little bit of a debate about this one. The court has heard two cases that involve the amendment, Lesser versus Garnett in 1922 and Breedlove versus Suttles in 37. But as far as I'm concerned, my reading of those cases, they don't actually interpret the amendment. They actually involve other issues. Uh, so I'm going to count 19 as uninterpreted. Well, since uh, I didn't then, list that one, GC, uh, I think we need a, a third-party review of uh, of that <laughs> of that, okay. of that call. All right. Yeah. Well, and then the twenty-sixth amendment, uh, giving uh, eighteen-year-olds hmm. the right to vote. Okay. Okay. Well done. All right. What do you Number have for two. me next? In Plessy versus Ferguson, the court announced its infamous separate but equal doctrine. In which case did the court overrule it? Well, I don't know that it's ever technically uh, been overruled. Um, uh, I know, you know, the court effectively overruled it in Brown v. Board of Education, where they said it wasn't applicable uh, to public schools. Uh, but I don't know that the court has ever formally uh, said that they are overruling that decision. Zach, it's really no fun for me to give you trick questions if you don't fall for the trick. OK, <laughs> well, and I'll tell <laughs> you uh, what uh, what got me thinking about this. Uh, was the uh, the Korematsu decision. I know there was a big uh, big uproar over that uh, several years ago. That's correct, right. So Plessy versus Ferguson was never overruled. The court in Brown versus Board of Education, as you said, held that it was inapplicable to public schools, but it didn't go further. But it's been made effectively dead letter by the Civil Rights Act and other Supreme Court cases. Funny you should bring up Korematsu because that brings me to question number three. Korematsu, like Plessy, has never been overruled explicitly, uh, but the court has disavowed it. In which case did it do that? Well, again, this was the one that, uh, from several years ago that got me thinking about this. I think it was the uh, Trump versus Hawaii uh, case, and I think uh, the chief justice uh, talked about Korematsu in that decision. That's right. In fact, he pulled it in. Uh, it, it was entirely dicta, but he said it was gravely wrong overruled by the court of history. Uh, so it's, we, I mean, we all knew it's dead, but it's dead, although it has technically not been explicitly overruled in a case that actually challenged it. So well done. 
All right, final question. We've talked about things the Supreme Court has not done. So let's talk about something the Supreme Court has done. Tell me if you can, what issues did the very first Supreme Court of the United States confront? Hmm. Well, I'm going to guess they were mostly administrative in nature uh, since uh, uh, John Jay, uh, our nation's first chief justice, and the other justices uh, were really uh, just getting things set up at that point. Aha! Zach, this time you did fall for my trick. In fact, uh, the court did nothing its first term. The Supreme Court heard no cases. So well, I think that falls within the administrative uh, <laughs> function answer I gave. Uh, again, I think we need a third-party review for that one. <laughs> well, well, well done, Zach. Uh, you really killed it on question number one, so congratulations. Those were, uh, those were tough, GC. You're starting off the, uh, the new year uh, coming in hot right out of the gate. <laughs> That's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate it if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.